0: Cool. Okay, Okay, guys. Hey, we're going to start going through the book of Luke and then we're going to do Acts. So, the last book that we actually went through, you know, chapter by chapter, was Joel, if you were here. And I was asked, I remember a few weeks ago, I was talking to Brooke. I thought, I wonder what we should go through next. I always like to do an Old Testament book, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, jump like that. And Brooke said, Well, we're planning a church. We're starting a new church, so obviously it's got to be Luke and Acts. I'm all, okay, you're right. Because <laughs> this is literally going to be, we need, we're going to need to do what we're about to read. And I would strongly encourage you guys over the next season is grab a journal, at least do a chapter a week, and write little notes of things that come to you. So do Luke chapter 1. And what is the Lord speaking to you through Luke chapter 1? And write that down. Then do chapter 2. But work your way chapter by chapter. Set aside time to read it more than once. And then write some notes about it. And so Luke and Acts. So what we're going to do today is look at the introduction of Luke. Chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read it. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So this is the preface to Luke. This is the introduction. What jumps out at you when you look at this? What do you notice? What is, Luke wants, he's setting the stage, right? What is it he, what is it, what does he want to do? What is his purpose? What is he, what do you see in here? The narrative of the things that are happening. Yeah. Order. The things that have been accomplished, that's actual things. So the idea is he's not making it up. You said an orderly account. He's, uh, he's laying it out almost chronologically and organizing it, yeah. There might be stories here, 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 and here, and here, and he's going to lay it all together in an organized fashion. What else do you notice? Anything else? Yeah. Um, like when he says with certainty, that means that he wants to make sure that he is fully really aware and that it's clear. Yeah, what, is, what does certainty mean? When you're, are you certain about this? What does that mean? That you're Sure. Sure. That stuff really happened, right? So in this preface, the first thing is, you notice the name Luke isn't mentioned anywhere. And he's not the named author in the book of of Luke, in the Bible. But in the early church, they all ascribe the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to him, to this guy named Luke. And what we've got is the, the oldest Greek manuscript, the oldest one with the Gospel of Luke. They all have numbers. P is for papyri, it's a type of material. and they're all numbered. So P75, a Greek manuscript, it's from about 200 AD. And at the end of it, it actually they actually have a little note, and they wrote according to Luke in the margin. And then Justin Martyr, who is a church father wrote a book called Dialogue with Trifo in 160 AD, and he says Luke wrote it. And then we have a list, one of the first lists of the New Testament books from 170 to 180 AD called the Muratorian Canon, where they were laying out, here's the actual books that are in the Bible. It says there that this gospel was written by Luke, And then another church leader named Irenaeus, he wrote a book called Against Heresies in 175 to 195 A.D., and he said that Luke was the author of the gospel and a follower with Paul. So people really don't dispute historically that Luke wrote this. It's pretty well established. Now, who was Luke? He was Paul's companion. If you look in 2 Timothy 4.4, 4, Paul wrote, Luke alone is with me. In Philemon 24, and he says, and Luke, my fellow workers. Now, Luke tells us that he received the content for the gospel and from the early part of Acts from other people that were eyewitnesses. But then he traveled with Paul, and so he himself was an eyewitness of events later on in Acts. How do we know that? Because he uses the pronoun we through the for the second half of Acts. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Luke includes himself. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And, and there's all these verses where, Paul, where Luke changes it to we. That means he's there. He's literally observing what's happening and a part of it. Luke was a doctor. In Colossians 4.14, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. He was a doctor. What else? He was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. In Colossians 4.10-11, Paul writes that A guy named Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice were the only Jews traveling with him at that time. He says they were the only Jews. Well, Luke was with him. So Luke was a Gentile. And you have lots of clues in Luke's writing that he was not a Jew. For instance, in Acts 119, when Luke refers to Aramaic, he calls it their language. He calls it the Jews' language. And he translates this Aramaic phrase, ekeldama, and he says it actually means field of blood. So there's a, it's almost without a doubt that Luke was a Gentile, not a Jew. Now, Luke was the author. So who was the recipient of his book? It says here, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account here it is, for you, most excellent Theophilus. And in the book of Acts, he also mentions Theophilus. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, who is Theophilus? When he says most excellent That phrase is used three other times, that Greek phrase, in Acts, always for addressing high governmental officials. The same exact phrase. So in Acts 23, 26, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. That's the same phrase. Acts 24, 2, for... Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellence, Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, Acts 26, 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Now, Theophilus was also most likely a believer, not just a high official. How do we know that? Because he'd already been taught all about Jesus. It says in Luke 1.4, concerning the things you have been taught already. So the implication, he was probably already a believer. Now, what's interesting is that Luke and Acts were written for Theophilus. It shows Luke was written in about the late 50s A.D. How do we know that? Um there's a book called First Clement. It was written in about 90 AD and it, it, it quotes from Luke, Luke's gospel. So we know by then it was written. But then in uh, First and Second Timothy, Paul quotes Luke and calls it scripture. And that was written in the early 60s AD before Paul was martyred. And then in First Corinthians, Paul quotes Luke as scripture, and 1 Corinthians was written in about 55 AD. These are just examples of how you date these. So about 20 years from Jesus' resurrection, the fact that the gospel had already made its way to guys like Theophilus shows how fast and the extent that it had gone from slaves to people ruling in the Roman Empire. Now, just because Luke and Acts were written to Theophilus, it's clear that Luke's intended audience was be- more than him, right? It's clear that he was, although he writes it to Theophilus, that wasn't his only in- recipients. Now, what are these books? Luke and Acts are two volumes of the same writing. Did you guys know that? And how, but how are they connected? Acts 1.1 is connecting the first book and the second book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, what does that say? Began to do and teach. Well, what happens in the first chapter of Acts? Where did, what happens to Jesus? He ascends into heaven, into the sky. But yet Luke calls the entire book of Luke just the beginning of what Jesus was doing. Think about that for a moment. What Jesus began, the church would continue. The church was supposed to continue Jesus' ministry. The church is supposed to do exactly what Jesus did. That's the reason there's Luke and Acts. Paul uses a literary technique called parallelism where you you communicate something by lining two passages side by side and it highlights either the similarities or the contrasts. Are you guys with me? Well, this might be too small for you to read because I can barely read this. These are lists of parallels between Luke and Acts. Jesus praying before his spirit and the descent of the spirit. The disciples praying before being baptized in the spirit. The spirit on Jesus, the spirit on the church. Inaugural mission speech, inaugural mission speeches. Healing many, power forth going unexpectedly. Healing many, power forth going unexpectedly. Healing a paralytic, Luke 5. Healing a paralytic, Acts 3. Opposition from Jewish leaders. Opposition from Jewish leaders. Raising the dead, raising the dead. God fearing centurion, God fearing centurion. A widow's son raised, a widow raised. Jesus' journey into Jerusalem, Paul's journey to Rome, warned dangers in Jerusalem, warned dangers in Jerusalem for Rome, and on and on. And you line up the two books. As the church follows Jesus in very specific ways, it literally looks exactly like Jesus' life. You don't get that unless you see the parallelism. But what's blue? What would Luke's point be? We are supposed to do exactly what he did in the book of Luke in terms of his life and ministry. Jesus is not just somebody to be studied. He's somebody to be copied. I hope that disturbs all of us. I hope you, we look at our lives, honestly, for reals, listen to me for a moment. I really hope this, that we look at our lives, and when we start reading Luke, we're thinking, my gosh, those two don't look alike at all. We need to be disturbed in that way. I hope that makes sense. What is the purpose of Luke and Acts? Well, let's go back to these introductory verses. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that, this little Greek conjunction means it's a purpose conjunction, so that, you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then in Acts 1.1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So let's look at this for just a moment. Luke is being a historian. And what he does is in verse 1, 1 to 2, he's stating his historical sources, which we, we'll look at a little bit. Then in verse 3, he gives his historical method. And then in verse 4, he gives the purpose for writing his writing. And so what is the purpose? According to Luke 1, 4, the purpose of his gospel is to provide certainty so that you are certain that you know what Jesus did and what happened with him. Why? So that you would know Jesus' life, ministry, and message, and not what? Not what? You got to say it louder. If you're not certain, you will Doubt. What is the primary goal of the gospel of the Luke? So that you will not doubt. But then what about Acts 1.1? If the purpose of Luke 1.4 is to provide certainty, Acts 1.1, the purpose of Acts is to provide a copy of Jesus and what happened with the church. Not just so that they would know it and not doubt it, so that they would imitate it and do it so that they would imitate it and do it. So what I want to do just for a couple of minutes is look at this first purpose of certainty in Luke 1.4. How is Luke going to make sure we are certain? And I, you may not realize oftentimes what happens in society is ideas become established ideas in schools. Teachers pass it on to students. Then those students get positions of leadership and jobs and are part of society. And then they transfer it into society, right? How do you know what a society is going to become? Look at what is being taught in the schools. And then give about 20 years. And it will become the way people, not just what they are taught, it will be the way they act. The same exact thing is with seminaries, is with Bible colleges. And the normal church person isn't realizing that in almost all seminaries, in almost all Bible colleges... They are teaching that the Bible is not historical fact, not from Genesis 1, not in the book of Luke or the book of Acts. That they were saying that even the authors never intended it to be historical fact. They're trying to give lessons of theology, not history. But if this stuff didn't really happen in history, then where's our theology going to come from? Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, why don't they get that? Hmm? <clears throat> why don't they get that? The that you just saying? They've talked themselves out of believing that the Bible is history. Because then it leaves wiggle room for certain sins that we have sin. It leaves wiggle room because, oh, well, that's actually not literal. That's not what they meant. Oh, that's not... Mm-hmm. So let's look at this again. How is Luke going to make sure that we are certain The world often accuses Christians of prioritizing faith over facts. When the world looks at Christians, they see, you guys talk about what you believe, your faith. You're wrong on what is true, facts. Starting with Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, they say that's obviously not true. God didn't create, there's no miraculous creation. There's natural evolution. DNA self organized, formed itself. Proteins formed themselves. Cells formed themselves. Eyeballs formed themselves. They say, is it obvious? And once you remove Genesis, the Bible falls like a house of cards. It's true. However, the Bible never calls for faith that's not based on facts. The Bible never calls for faith that's contrary to facts. Never. And, and for Luke, his, this is a record of historical facts not the opinions of some guy from the first century. By the time Luke wrote his gospel, there were many other written accounts of Jesus. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things. He said, people have been writing all over the place. And not just written accounts, but oral accounts. When he says, have delivered them to us, this is, Verb was often used for passing down something orally now with phones and TV and tape recorders Memories we don't understand developing memory the way they did in the first century a Jewish student would memorize word for word his rabbi's teachings Within the same short time period of the teaching. We just because we don't strengthen the memory muscle, we don't understand. Plus, they had the Holy Spirit. So, what are these stories based on? Luke says they're not myths, they're not fiction, they're eyewitness reports. Eyewitness reports. And ancient historians believed. See, I have heard this say, well, then in ancient historians. They didn't approach history the way we do now. They didn't approach science the way we do now. Facts were not important to them and details the way they are now. When you look at ancient historians, they bent over backwards to to make sure that that the people they're writing to knew that they were using eyewitness accounts. I'm going to give you just a couple of examples. A Greek historian, Polybius, from 200 to 118 BC, wrote a bunch of ancient histories called histories. And he says, these I designed to make the starting point of what may almost be called a new work, a new historical work, partly because of the greatness and surprising nature of the events themselves. A lot was happening in the Greco-Roman Empire. And chiefly because... In the case of most of them, I was, listen to his argument, I was not only an eyewitness, but in some cases, one of the actors, I was doing it. And in others, the chief director, I was overseeing it. Josephus, a Jewish historian, 37 to 100 AD, wrote, And as for the history of the war, I wrote it as having been an actor myself in many of its transactions and I witness in the greatest part of the rest and is not unacquainted with anything whatsoever that was either said or done in it. You see what he's saying? Papias, an a, a ancient church father, was written about by a church historian named Eusebius in 260 to 339 AD. And he wrote, Papias himself, however, according to the preface of his treatises, makes it clear that he was never a hearer or eyewitness of the Holy Apostles. But he shows that he received the doctrines of the faith from those who knew them. Papias made a big deal. Yeah, I didn't hear the apostles or Jesus directly, but I interviewed the people that heard the apostles and Jesus directly. This is, these are ancient historians. You see what a big deal it was to them. Now, Luke doesn't just claim to compile and write these eyewitness accounts. The gospel of Luke itself has evidence that it was an eyewitness account. Does that make sense? I'm going to just give you two very quick examples. He says, verse 1-2, just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He doesn't just say there's one eyewitness report. He says there's a bunch of eyewitness reports. In a court of law, you want multiple independent eyewitnesses. Right? To make a verdict. Now, when you've got multiple eyewitnesses, will one witness see everything that happened? Are you going to get all your details from one witness? No, because they only have one perspective, right? So what would a detective do if there's a crime scene? He's going to interview multiple eyewitnesses that saw what happened. Because one eyewitness might give details that fills in the gap of another eyewitness, right? This eyewitness might give some details, another eyewitness gives details, and a third eyewitness gives details. They're all different, but what do they help do? Complement each other. They help establish what's true. One eyewitness fills in the gaps that the other observations of another eyewitness might have. Does that make sense? you guys with me? So what do you find when you look at these multiple eyewitness accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? When you read them, John will leave out details that raise questions. Luke will include details that answers questions that you would have if you read John. Luke will leave out details that raises a question. Well, why? Matthew, in his description, will provide details that answer the question you have when you read Luke. Are you guys with me? And and what you find is in reading the Gospels, an eyewitness report describes an event but leaves out details that raise further questions. And then these questions are unintentionally answered by other eyewitness reports and other Gospels. Unintentionally. It just happens when you have multiple reports. And so you find this interdependence To really understand a lot of these scenes of Jesus, you need to look at all the different reports. Now, is this because all the gospel writers got together in some smoky room and decided to collude? Hey, let's all, you know what I'm saying? Did they all decide to, to put together some clever story that fits? Or was it because they were just reporting independently observed eyewitness accounts. Let me give you an example of this. So I, I work at Power Plus, I'm a manager there, and let's say I have an employee that shows up late. And I'm gonna be like, why were you late? And they said, well, at the intersection of La Palma and Imperial, there was an accident. And so the police were routing the cars around And that's why I'm late getting to work. I think, oh, okay. A few hours later, another employee shows up late. And I say, well, why were you late? And he says, oh, I was driving through the intersection of La Palma and Imperial, and there was some glass on the road. And I punctured my tire, and my tire went flat, and I had to get it fixed. I've got two different reports. The first guy doesn't mention anything about glass. The second guy doesn't even mention anything about an accident. But you see how they fill in details of each other. You find this everywhere, literally everywhere in the Gospels. Unintentional, unplanned details that support each other. You would only get that if you have multiple eyewitness accounts. Let me give you two very fast examples. In Matthew 26, 67 to 68, then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? That's all Matthew says. Matthew doesn't add anything. So you're reading that and you're thinking, if I only read Matthew, well, that's weird. The question itself is odd Weren't the people punching Jesus right in front of Jesus? Couldn't Jesus, it doesn't seem like a challenge, couldn't he just look at his attackers and identify them? Because if you read Matthew only, that's all Matthew says. But what if you also read Luke? Luke adds a detail that answers a question raised by Matthew. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him they also blindfolded him. Matthew doesn't mention that. And kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? So Luke mentions that Jesus is blindfolded. That's not a detail Matthew mentions. Luke's detail explains why the council members asked him, who is it that struck you? Another example. In Matthew 8, 6, it says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were sick. So Matthew says that people brought their sick to Jesus in the evening after sundown. But why then? Matthew doesn't say why. Why are they doing it in the dark? Matthew doesn't say. But Luke and Mark add that that day was the Sabbath, something Matthew doesn't add. So the Jews would not walk over to see Jesus and bring their sick until the Sabbath was over at sundown. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Matthew doesn't mention that. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Now, what's interesting is, judges and attorneys, when they are listening to witnesses in a case, are list, are listening for unintentional, unplanned details that complement each other. That show that they was it wasn't colluded; it was independent. Historians, when you analyze a historical things, do the same thing. Well. There are volumes written about the Gospels where evidence of this is everywhere. Does that make sense? Because the reason I'm being so firm on this, you would be shocked how many pastors right now are reading books. I'm not saying the pastors yet believe this. The books they are reading say this because I know the authors. And those authors do not believe that the Gospels are historical eyewitness accounts that can be trusted. They believe that, the Gosp- that whoever wrote the Gospels fictionalized, made stuff up to try to make points. World history. Here's another reason, another example why we can trust the Gospels. Throughout Luke and Acts, Luke ties local events of biblical history with wider events of world history. And he does this all the time. And Luke is showing, it's one way of showing the historical truthfulness. Right? In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division Abijah. Luke 2, 1-2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Well, you can look at extra-biblical history and you can say that's right or wrong. Right? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee. These are all, his. he doesn't have to add all these historical details. And his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituraea, I don't know how to pronounce that, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the reign of the priesthood of Anis Caiaphas. Why is he adding all those details? Acts 5.36, for before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Acts 11, 28, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Acts 18, 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, Recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Acts 1812: But when Gallio was proconsul of Acha- Achaia, the Jews made a unified attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. There are books this thick about all of the historical references in Luke and Acts to things outside of local events, to world history events. And you know what all those books say? Luke is right on every possible reference. Not pastors, not theologians, historians writing this. I'm going to give you one very fast example. You guys saw where, I said, where we said this. Um, where was it? Crick. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So we've got one mention of Quirinius. One sentence in Luke where he is called the governor of Syria and there's a connection with the census, right? In Beirut, Lebanon, archaeologists discovered a tablet it was an ancient tombstone with an epitaph on it. An epitaph of a Roman military officer named Quintus Amelius Secundus. And it says he served under the governor Quirinius in Syria. Guess what this tombstone epitaph also mentions? it doesn't just affirm that Quirinius was the governor of Syria, but it mentions that a census took place during his governorship. And the timing of the census would have fit perfectly with Luke's account of the Roman census connected to Jesus' birth. There is a picture of that epitaph. There is, I have, there a book that has traced over 80 historical references in Acts alone and how not one of them is contradicted by non-biblical history. Does that make sense? It is Acts in the Hellenistic world. I'll have to get you the, in the Hellenistic world or something like that. So let's go back to Luke real quick. We'll finish with this. It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus that you may have, what is the word? You may have what? Certainty. Certainty. Concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke describes his historical sources verse 1 to 2, his historical method verse 3, and his purpose verse 4. And he says that he followed all things closely. That closely in Greek, acrobos. it means carefully. It means accurately. It means exactly. Luke uses this word in other places. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more Accurately, that's the word acrobos. Acts 23.15, now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate, accurate information about this case, acrobos. But Felix, having a rather accurate acrobos knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide for your case. Luke is saying, he is affirming what I am writing is factually true. There is no better evidence than eyewitness evidence, especially from multiple independent eyewitnesses. He says, I'm the one that's, I'm putting that all together. It's not enough. Listen to me carefully. It is not enough just to believe. You must know. There are more commands in the New Testament for you to know than there are for you to believe. Does that make sense? And that's the whole point, Luke says, of my first volume, is to give you certainty. And we're going to need it. I'm telling you the Bible is being deconstructed. Is being torn apart. The gospels are being attacked. And it's not just by the atheist blogger on the internet. It's by the evangelical seminary professor with a bunch of pastors in his room. I'm telling you. And 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 so what we need to do, it's a, it's, it's a whole lifetime of us and our kids and people that we know of learning the history and the historical facts of Scripture. Does that make sense? So what we're going to do is we're going to be exploring. Um, I'm not going to be able to go verse by verse. That would take years. But we're gonna, I'm going to be picking out key sections as we work our way through Luke. Keith highlights. And then when we're done with Luke, we're going to go through Acts. And it will take a while. But we're going to work our way through all of Luke and all of Acts. And so, any thoughts before we, before we take, we're going to take communion today, but any thoughts in just this introduction to Luke? Yeah. I was just going to share, I'm listening <clears throat> through a book called Is Atheism Dead by Eric Metaxas, and he has compiled... Uh, scientific evidence and archaeological evidence mm-hmm. um, that's just fascinating totally mm-hmm. confirms the word mm-hmm. you know that the elite smart sciencey people out there that I don't even get that they you know they know that the universe could not have created itself I mean, because the science won't let it you know so there's the narrative of Darwinianism that has been passed down to us but the people who know science at the highest levels, know that it supports what the Bible says, you know, and, and the archaeology too. They found Sodom, you know, I mean, archaeological evidence of the destruction of melted pottery and, you know, things that, anyway, it's just been super encouraging to listen to. If they were to find just one piece of archaeological evidence that could contradict the Bible, do you know that that would be plastered everywhere? I'm telling you, it would be on all the news reports. It would be in a gazillion books, a gazillion textbooks. It would become the rowling cry of the world. But guess what they have not found? Listen to me. Not one piece of archaeological evidence that has contradicted a claim of Scripture. Not one. Now, you might go on the Internet and they'll claim it, right? but then you go and look at their research you look at what they're saying and you realize okay that's actually not true right and it's 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 amazing and so yeah any other final thoughts before we take communion any final thoughts